0: With inflation currently running several percentage points higher than most bonds are paying in interest, why own them? And with all the deficit spending, money printing, and bond buying by the U.S. federal government, should you be looking for other solutions? Stay tuned as we discuss all that and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show.
1: Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams.
2: Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm one of your co hosts, Adrian Nicholson, and I'm joined today by Eric Olson. We got another great episode, another informative episode for our listeners today, and we're glad you're here able to join us. We took two articles that we think are going to be really interesting, and we're going to share them with you in our show notes. The first article is Why in the World Would You Own Dollar Debt by Ray Dalio? And the second article is Portfolio Strategy Commentary, What to Do with the 40. This is by Daniel Phillips. And we're going to be kind of focusing on a lot of different areas with respect to bonds negative rates the whole macroeconomics. and it's going to be a very interesting episode and eric's going to kind of dive in and tell us why this is going to be an important topic today and kind of give you some interesting concepts and he's also got a story to really kick things off so i'm really looking for another um exciting episode
0: yeah hey well by the way before i actually do that i just want to give a, give a shout out to roshan our erstwhile co-host who's uh who's uh, out and about. So, Roshan, sorry you couldn't be with us to discuss this uh, interesting topic. I bet it would be one that you'd love, but as you listen later, I hope you like it. I also want to say thank you to you, Adrian, and to Roshan from the previous episode in which you, um, I was listening as I was out in northern Michigan, actually, in the UP, Upper Peninsula, driving along Lake Superior, and I had my headphones in, and I was listening to the episode that... Uh, I had missed when I was at the podcast movement. I guess it was two episodes ago. And you guys did the high-impact life story about the Special Olympics. And I thought that was so cool that you did that. So thank you very much for that.
2: Of course, Eric. It was really exciting to share one of my uh, one of my personal stories on creating a fundraiser for the Special Olympics. And it was just uh, really great just to be able to share that with uh, the listeners. And um, I'm glad you enjoyed it, too. I I love giving shout-outs when I can. And I love just... Sharing uh, stories when I can—it's always uh, very exciting, and I'm glad this podcast gave me the opportunity to do that. So um, it's all been good, and I'm looking forward to, to recording another episode with you today. It's going to be yeah, a, here, here, going to be another good one. So you can uh, start us off and tell our listeners kind of do the little recap and give a little story too that you talked about as well.
0: Yeah, and while I'm at it, I'm just going to say for our listeners who didn't hear those previous episodes, now we have an easy way for you to find them that's to go to our newly built and, and uh, launched website, which is retirement show.com. You can go there and find all our past episodes, uh, the YouTube versions, the audio versions of show notes, the whole kit and caboodle. So get yourself over there. If you haven't done that already and, uh, and, and check it out. So, but I wanted to start with this, with a story to set up why this conversation is important. And, um, First of all, I mean, most of our clients have portfolios that have some amount of bonds in them and and the question is, you know why do we have those bonds in there right now when at this point, the um, interest rates on bonds minus the inflation rate that we're suffering through right now means that the yield after adjusting for inflation is actually negative in other words we call that the real return or the real interest rate the real yield on bonds right now is negative let's be specific the 10-year treasury bond which it currently has or at least at the end of july had a 1.24 percent yield that yield is coming in the context of what also, at the end of July, was a consumer price index that was, depending on whether you're looking at the core, it's called, which excludes food and energy, or the headline version, which, in, which includes those two, is, either a, is 4.3% for the core and 5.4% for the headline so let's just even use the more gentle of those two the core CPI of 4.3 if you say I'm getting 1.24 percent return or yield at least on that 10-year treasury bond and I then subtract from that a 4.3 percent current inflation rate what that means is is that I have a negative 3.06 percent return
2: yeah Eric and that's incredible and you he- you think about it, the purpose of investing is to have money in a store hold of wealth so you can convert it into buying power at a later date. And right now you're talking about negative rates. It's just, it kind of just makes you question this and think about it. And that's why we're going to have this discussion today. Because like I said, the purpose of investing is to just increase your buying power in the future on, on its most basic level. And again, we're talking about having negative rates here. And like yields being so low, yes, the the inverse of that is prices, bond prices are kind of hitting their upper limits right now. But again, it's kind of that give take relationship that we're going to kind of highlight today.
0: So the two the two articles that you uh, identified a little earlier in this conversation, Adrian, are taking I would say two contrasting looks at the question of whether or not to have. Bonds in your portfolio. And so we thought we'd lead out with the one by Ray Dalio because honestly, if you if you didn't have any other sort of touch points, this one might make you want to wet your pants. Basically, Uh, the 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 the, it starts gently or relatively gently by talking about the problem of negative real uh, interest rates on bonds but it just builds from there and it gets to the point where ultimately it does provide some solutions and there are some solutions, but our second article will deal more with a everybody calm down, back away from the cliff. Let's have a conversation about, you know, how how bad is this really? So we'll, we'll provide both perspectives, but we thought we'd at least uh, offer the wet your pants version first and then help you back away from the cliff. So, Adrian, what are some of the key things that he's talking about early in this article to kind of build the argument uh, essentially against bonds?
2: Uh, I think the biggest thing, too, is kind of going back to that real rate that you talked about where yields right now are just at such a low level because, again, there is a lot of fiscal and monetary spending and money coming into the system, which is just pushing these uh, rates down more and more. And again, the, like I mentioned earlier, the purpose of investing and and moving your money into let's just say fixed income and bonds is um, one big thing is uh, liquidity and income. But where, where rates compared to inflation is causing negative, you really have to begin to question that. And I thought it was really interesting, kind of that example and that story he gave, where like if you locked up your money to say in like u.s fixed income or european or japanese or chinese bonds it could take almost hundreds of years to get back your original principle and that right there like you said eric made me wet my pants i'm just like that's just hard to believe just to begin with
0: yeah i mean in terms of the hundreds of years and so his concern is that if the, if we're in this sort of situation how long will people tolerate it and it, what, you know, what's the next step or how, what's the next chapter in this story? So one more, I would say, sort of uh, benign version of this story is that rates stay low, bond prices stay high. Remember, listeners, there's an inverse relationship between the price and the, the yield of a bond. So the, if the interest rate of a bond falls it's the price of that bond rises or said differently if the price of something rises its yield falls i think that's actually more the direction of it on the other hand if the if the the yield rises the price falls so let's leave out the cause and effect here for just a moment but the, the point is is that if you're at the 10-year treasury is at 1.24 percent And yes, granted in August of 2020, I think it was at about 0.54. So certainly it can be lower than 1.24%. That was 7 tenths of a percent lower. But unless they start denominating 10-year treasuries with a nominal return that is actually below zero, and by the way, that has happened. I think I recall Swiss bonds a few years back were actually offering a, a stipulated negative interest rate at a nominal level. But people were willing to buy them because they felt like, well, there's more safety in a slightly negative nominal yield and an even more negative real yield than some of the alternatives for parking that cash. So, you know, it's, it seems odd to me. But his, his basic argument is, is there may, while there may be some instances in which you will see a nominal rate that's below zero, the, the likelihood is, is that you won't. And so if the rate can't drop realistically on a sustained basis below zero then prices really cannot go up from where they are here or at least not much and if that's the case then does it does it stay in a holding pattern does it stay there on an indefinite basis maybe the answer is yes but maybe the answer is no Adrian, do you recall some of the things he was talking about in terms of sort of the argument for maybe no, that bonds don't stay in that holding pattern?
2: Um, I thought it was just really interesting that section where he says, um, where bonds have kind of been on this 40-year bull market that has rewarded those who were long and penalized those who were short. And I think that was a really significant area of the article, and and like we mentioned earlier, just um, interest this low interest rate environment has just made bonds at these upper limit prices where it's kind of like you said is it going to be this holding pattern or like kind of what's going to be this instant where it either um like stays at this or it, it begins to fall and i think that's something that you really have to look into more and just consider this aspect of these bonds and again uh, a good role that bonds play is that inverse relationship and that maybe that low correlation to equities where you don't want to overweight your portfolio in one section compared to another section that's what that other article that we mentioned discuss and i think that's going to be a really important area as well that we can talk about
0: well i think that one of the big points that he mentions uh in this and by the way i think if we didn't say it ray dalio isn't just some guy ray dalio is the founder of bridgewater associates the largest or one of the largest Hedge funds in the world, so he has a he has a following and he has a track record, and um, he's not just some crank who's kind of out there always, you know, Doctor Doom or whatever, with uh, these dire warnings trying to get on uh, somebody's talk show or something of that nature. Instead, he's he's run a big operation that's been enormously successful, so he has this kind of this kind of credibility. His observation is is that uh, the way that central banks have been operating which has been to essentially print money has it has been the, in part a way of providing stimulus for these economies and the normal thing that an irrational investor would do in normal times in response to that stimulus is try to get ahead of it and 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 as soon as they recognize that that stimulus is coming buy what he calls reflation assets so Adrian, just some examples of reflation assets. What would those be?
2: Um, a common one would be equities. That's the go-to one. But I kind of want to just do an, a little bit of a, a summary of what, he, uh, what you kind of mentioned, Eric. And then the article mm-hmm. talks about monetary policy three, which is the coordination of fiscal policy is where the central government just begins to borrow and direct money where Ray Dalio says to those that want to get it. And then there's the monetary policy aspect of it where central banks print money to buy up this government debt. This is kind of the stimulation he's talking about. And I think the example is see the economy as a person and then see the other aspect of it, like the government and the central banks as the doctor, or if the economy's Mm -hmm. pulse is going down, all this uh, stimulation, this kind of cures to put money into it to kind of stimulate the economy have this all this money going into the system into consumers hands, just to kind of revamp the economy so to speak is kind of what's been going on recently again you kind of saw a lot during the pandemic or again keeping rates low and putting money into the financial system again to support these prices and other aspects of it and these reflation assets are also key to it as well to kind of hedge against this what do you think eric
0: yeah, so so in the normal time, you're right. So they would buy things like equities, as you mentioned. They might buy uh, inflation-protected securities. They might buy gold. But at this point, it, his argument is, is that you put so much stimulus into the system and you keep doing that on a sustained basis, the, the incremental benefit from that stimulus starts to diminish. Whereas for those of us, our, our listeners who remember some of their econ 101 class the marginal benefit from each additional dollar of this stimulus is is a diminishing marginal benefit and as a result at some point you have to put in greater and greater infusions of this stimulus or this money printing and at some point people say wait a second this is crazy and, it, and it's costing us so much to service the debt now p- by the way part of the point of creating these negative real interest rates, it's not just an, sort of an unintentional byproduct in his argument. Now, he doesn't say it quite as explicitly, but, but sort of re- reading between the lines, if you'll allow us to do that here, is that in part it's intentional because what it does is by allowing you to pay back with, with dollars that because of inflation are worth less and less and less over time, you're having to pay implicitly less and less and less over time to service not necessarily repay but service the debt that you had previously accumulated and so in this sense it's not as though the idea is well well, let's figure out how to pay off the debt instead it's rather more an argument of let's how do we just keep keep the ball in the air or the plate spinning and uh and continue to shovel more and cheaper and cheaper dollars to service that old debt. And at some point, people say, this, this isn't workable anymore. And then, in his argument, comes a somewhat frightening turning point. Adrian, you want to talk about that? Well,
2: I think also one of my, the, one of my favorite terms and something that's you know, always important to follow, he mentioned in the article, is when there's this increased supply of money injected into the system, it really moves asset prices and you can see these bubbles begin to form in certain areas. And I think that's, uh, that's also just really um, like a byproduct of all this money coming into the system. And if, if anybody doesn't know a bubble, you just look at like a, a stock or like a chart. An example would be just this, this rapid price upwards, just going up and up and up. The prices continue to just get supported to this level. they call it a bubble because in some instances, you can see it go down or pull back rapidly. I think that's also something that he kind of like points out that can really just really stir in the reader where all this money in the system, yes, it supports certain areas of the economy and help kind of rejuvenate it. But it also, um, the other end of it is like, how long can these asset prices support it? How long does it take to service this debt? And I think you have to kind of see both ends of it. And I think that was like a really intriguing part of the article as well
0: yeah so it's the the problem then of all this money printing and this increasing debt and by the way if you just look at the way in which debt globally has exploded over the you know the last few dec the last decade and a half in particular and particularly the 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 um amount of of debt on the balance sheets of the of the federal reserve the european central bank and the bank of japan you just say we're uh we're you know we're apparently well just for the record we're at about seven or eight times the amount of debt on the federal reserve's balance sheet as we had just 13 years ago I mean, in 13 years, in the entire history of the republic, we've multiplied that debt by seven times in that short period of time.
2: I thought it was also interesting, Eric. What was kind of your take where Ray Dalio said he's starting to see a little bit of a shift from U.S. bonds to Chinese bonds, where, um, again, the U.S. has been being one of the world's leading reserve currencies. But all this over borrowing over the decades, investors are starting to look at other areas, international areas, wherever it may be to look for other fixed income, again, trying to get, get as creative as possible and look at different areas. I thought that was another interesting thing lo- looking forward to kind of look into.
0: Well, yeah. So let's just elaborate on that point since it, it's a, it's a, I won't say it's a side point, but it's an, imp- I would say it's, it's not the core point, but I want, certainly want to address it because as you just pointed out, that is a. That is an element of his argument. And when he comes to solutions, which we'll address in just a moment, but one of those is just to identify since he's, you know, you've highlighted the Chinese case, what, is, what does China do differently than, let's say, the other three central banks or the sort of money centers that I just identified a moment ago, which have served as essentially the world's reserve currencies, namely the dollar, the euro, and the yen? Well, in China, they have a favorable balance of trade and a favorable balance of payments. They also have higher yields on their bonds. And so in this case, his argument is, is that you can find value. Not there, There's political risk. There's other risks. He's not denying those. But you can find value in incorporating into your portfolio, uh, among other things, Chinese, Chinese bonds and Chinese credit because of the higher returns high, higher yields I should say as well as uh, as we pointed out a more favorable economic um, balance of of payments and such so <clears throat> but here's the thing that his argument is is and Adrian you were going here before is that that not only does it become then a debt bubble but it becomes an, a bubble of all sorts of different kinds of what we'd call financial assets as opposed to real assets. So financial assets and stocks included. And so at, at some point his concern is, is that there comes of, of a sort of a, uh, a turning point or there becomes a sort of a, a flipping point. I guess I'm, I'm struggling to find the right word for this, but it is this, uh, this moment, this inflection point, I guess, where people start to say, Hmm, Maybe this doesn't make a lot of sense, and someone starts to sell their bonds. And what that does is it creates a kind of cascade. And that's not only true of, of, in bonds as bubbles, but other bubbles as well. But his focus here is on the bond bubble. And what that does in his, his language, not ours, is create traumatic uh, disruptions at several levels. And so now what happens to the societies that have had this sort of traumatic um, need to try to adjust, there become essentially political struggles over the division of of the now more limited assets if the money printing can't continue, and uh, it just creates a lot of social turmoil, political turmoil, economic turmoil... People understand that the returns to their portfolios will be smaller, that their buying power will be smaller, et cetera, and in in the long run, it's just not favorable. So, I, I, I'd like to turn to his solution in in just a second here. But Adrian, is there anything that you want to add to his 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 warning or at least his his concern?
2: He mentions, like in the article, like imagine what would happen if for any. For all these reasons, the holders of these, these debt assets wanted to sell. And right now, in the article we mentioned, there is around seven trillion of U.S. debt assets of varying maturities. So I think that kind of goes along with your points. Like there's so much money in the, this area of the the economy that it just should be monitored, and just you have to like think about this certain area of it because it's just it's such a massive amount of uh, U.S. debt here. I think it's, Really interesting, but then we can move on to the the next section of the article as well. I think it's really good. And Eric, you're you're, you're right. Just reading this article, it, it really just sparks um just sparks attention to this like area that you know that it's a really big part of sometimes people's portfolio. And again, we're going to talk about it in like the the sixty forty article. I think it's really interesting where it's like the equity portion, but also the bond portion of your portfolio. Just really be aware and look at different areas and how you can adjust moving forward i think is going to be really big
0: oh it, yeah so adrian then the, talking about his solution and and the word will probably seem a little uh, the the language that he uses for this may seem a little anti uh, climatic climactic because at this point you know you've You've been hearing him sort of sound this alarm or sound this concern talking about where we are, in his view, this, this long-term debt cycle, 50- or 100-year debt cycle, and here he sees us in the late stages of it, now kind of sort of further exacerbated by the advent of this, this uh, coronavirus and the COVID disease and then all of the stimulus responses to it. But he would say if you're, if you're thinking rationally the the best approach that you can take is just to be extremely diversified and and so a concentrated portfolio and and Adrian this is where i would say you know some of the conversations i've had with uh clients and prospective clients lately has just been really interesting um actually i was talking this is actually one of the stories one of the clients that i was or prospective clients that i was talking with yes uh, just last week actually was saying it doesn't make any sense for me to be invested in anything really outside Amazon and Google,
2: wow, that is Microsoft a, that is an and a few of the other big names. That is an interesting take. I mean, like finance one hundred and one is like you don't want to be heavily concentrated in in like one specific company because you have that company risk aspect. But uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I really want to hear more about this story.
0: Yeah, so well I'm using those as sort of the headline on that particular on that particular conversation but it also included the, the other common names that you see in the S&P 500's big 6 right now. Uh and Apple and Microsoft and so forth. And the, since those are the ones that are compounding capital the fastest, that's where you should position most of your wealth and other sort of arguments for diversification in his mind and are are just are theoretically defensible but in terms of in terms of actually growing your wealth are indefensible and so um and i of course take the view that i'm not only about wealth the growth of wealth but also about the protection and preservation of wealth so it sort of depends on where you are i guess in in your journey with respect to all of this but the argument that Dalio makes then as the remedy, or at least the, the defense, if there is one, against this sort of outcome is to be as fully diversified as you possibly can. And so that would mean that you would have not only a presence, in, and diversification doesn't mean, well, then I'll add Netflix to, <laughs> to the other five things that I've already mentioned. What it means is that you would have not only U.S. equities, large and small, And bonds, possibly, although he doesn't say bonds, but his emphasis would be on certainly international and then also on real assets. When we say real assets, we're talking about things that you can touch and feel. So that would include real estate. Um, The argument, I think, would extend to gold. Since he explicitly mentions this, I'm not putting words into his mouth. It would also include some of the cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin. Now, this was... This was uh, an article that was published in February, and just last week, I believe it was, or was it even earlier this week? The, the Senate, if I recall correctly, the U.S. Senate came out with um, a, a version of a bill that would, if passed, lead to the um, to the taxation of of. Uh, Cryptocurrencies in a way that would uh, be the federal government's attempt to either you could argue get in on the action or suppress the suppress the development of the alternative uh, asset digital asset space. But um, nevertheless, in his case, it would be to diversify. And you mentioned earlier, Adrian, as well. Some of those would be Chinese um, credits and things of that kind. So, I guess if I would say to summarize. There are tools out there that are designed to help you have exposure to or participate in, whichever word you prefer there, all of the asset classes that are available on the planet, at least to the extent that they're publicly tradable, and, um, and then allow yourself to have that extremely broad exposure. Adrian, your, your thoughts? Yeah,
2: it seems like there's kind of like two takes from it. Diversify across a number of asset classes, for example, um, equities, bonds, real estate, alternative investments, whatever whatever it may be. And then within those asset classes, try and diversify even more. Just look for all areas that you can diversify just to kind of um, just create these protections and hedges in your portfolio. And also, um, you can look at different components to see w- what areas of the world you're consolidated and are all your asset classes and you diversify within those asset classes only concentrated in the US? Is it only concentrated in China, Japan, Europe, whatever it may be? Just getting as creative as possible and looking to these different asset mixes is, is extremely important. I think um, that's what he's really going for. And you really need to monitor to see what kind of environment. Will your portfolio be the weakest in what kind of environment will your portfolio be the strongest in? look at all these different economic indicators and these different price levels and see where this money is kind of flowing to kind of make your decision i think is uh is is really important and really and really beneficial in the in the long run
0: and i should mention there's one other thing that he highlighted that we have failed to note in here and that is if bonds are if bonds are unrewarding, cash is worse, <laughs> because the yields on cash are even worse, and the inflation is is harming them at the same rate as it's her- hurting the bonds themselves. So on that basis, he would say that that's also partly intentional, that uh, the governments want people to part with their cash and instead uh, own buy this debt. And so a way to incentivize them to do it is to make it more terrible to hold cash than it is to hold bonds. So I, I thought that was interesting as well. Although I'm still a believer in holding cash for other reasons, and it's not because of the return it's on that cash. It's instead for the liquidity value of it all. But anyway, there's our discussion of Dalio. So Adrian, would you be ready to turn over now to the, to the Northern Trust article?
2: Yeah, this is a really great article and a really informative one again doesn't kind of scare the reader as much as ray dalio does <laughs> i kind of called this this article kind of like the light at the end of ray dalio's tunnel so this is uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. this is a little bit better where it kind of it uses the traditional 60 40 example and kind of just looks into the 40 aspect of it and when i say 60 40 60 stock 40 percent bond and that forty percent bond aspect has kind of been really weighing on some investors' portfolio where they're kind of not really getting the return they really want or need and this article kind of says, "Well, let's look at that forty aspect and see what we can do to improve the income, the liquidity to diversify it a little bit more and it just kind of breaks it down to each of these steps, and I think it's uh really interesting
0: so let's let's also just give people some context for this so is over the last five years, I believe, that 60-40 portfolio, and in their case, to make it simple, what they did is for the 60, which is the stock component or the equity component, they used, I believe, the All World Stock or All World Equity Index. So it's not biased toward one or another country. It's certainly not the S&P 500. It's just taking all stocks um, in proportion to their availability globally. And then for on the U.S. side, I believe they were using the, the uh, U.S. Aggregate Bond Index for the 40%. That portfolio over the last five years has returned slightly more than 10.2% and, or in the neighborhood of 10, just over 10%. Historically, that portfolio, if I recall correctly, has returned a 95 But their forecast, at least for the next uh, five years, is Is only 3.6 3.6 and that's not entirely attributable to the bonds either so the bonds they're saying there's a preview of some things that they talk about later in this article they think the bond part of the portfolio will still contribute overall 2.3% so the the rest of the portfolio will be coming from the stock side and there they think there will be somewhat more return but the blended the blended to- total return on that, on a forward basis, for at least a while, they're projecting at only three point six percent. Not great, but not uh at least at this point as dismal a picture as was being painted by Ray Dalio.
2: I think it's interesting. Uh, Do you think it was interesting where they? I was kind of looking for somewhere in the article where they kind of touched on rebalancing, or is that just a whole different conversation for later? Where I think it's like important to note where like, let's just say you set up your portfolio as 60-40 and you just have like, let's just say two, three years of your equities just performing really well, where you're going to be kind of overweighted at one point in equities compared to the overbond. So I, I guess it's important to note in this section on the role of rebalancing how, how that can be important as well.
0: Right. I think so. Well so what they've done in this article and and by the way it's a it's a group of people there so you mentioned Daniel Phillips, Michael DeWan and James McDonald the three of them plus some of the other uh, staff researchers and others that had input on their article combined to write this and this was released in February of 2021 so but they addressed it from the vantage point of n- number 1 we want to say that the fears about the bond component of the portfolio that are generally circulating in this discussion of negative real interest rates—they're saying those fears are overblown—and they ex- will explain why, um, and that they they believe that there are some solutions. So let's just outline the big three, the big three arguments that they hear, uh, particularly from the client side about concerns related to their their bond the bond contributions of their portfolio did you did you note those adrian Yeah,
2: the first one is um i'm not getting enough income and that, that seems like the common one given the interest rate environment
0: how about number two we'll come back through each of these but so that was num- not getting enough income is the num- number one or one of the big three uh concerns that here expressed
2: the second one would be i'm exposed to downside more than upside and then that's the second issue yep and then the third issue is i've lost my diversification benefit
0: okay so let's before we give their solutions let's just explain each of those problems so i think it's pretty clear the first one that you outlined adrian that i'm not getting income that's because interest rates are so low so we'll we'll come back to that in just a second. The the second the second complaint that they hear or concern that they hear, which you said, there's more downside risk than there's upside risk. What do they mean by that?
2: This one, I I'm actually kind of interested to hear your take on it because this is where the role of duration kind of came into this area that I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Where just the price sensitivity to interest rate is uh, important to note with bonds to kind of see what your 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 overall protection is. I thought that was kind of a really interesting point in this issue right here that, you know, investors should always be aware of that, you know, that's not really common. You hear about duration risk.
0: All right. So let me talk about duration risk and I'll I'll just precede the the discussion of duration risk to talk about the price and yield element here at first. So if if there's more downside risk and there's upside opportunity in this, what do they mean by that? So Remember a few minutes ago, we were talking about the correlation or the inverse relationship between yields and price. and price of bonds. And so if the yields are already approaching zero, they can't go much lower realistically, at least on a nominal level. Nominal is before the adjustment for inflation real is after the adjustment for inflation we've already acknowledged that they can certainly go negative very negative on a real basis but at least on a nominal basis it's just it's just really kind of hard for us to get our minds around someone saying hey come come invest in my bond i'll charge you i'll charge you interest to own this thing it's just that just doesn't that doesn't add up to us so instead the the thought process is Come on, they can get close to zero, but they're not going to go at a nominal level below zero. So if, again, the, given the inverse relationship, that if, they, if the yields can't go much lower, the argument is, then the prices of those bonds can't go much higher. Meaning I might be buying bonds, if I do so, at the near the, their highest possible prices.
2: Like where can it go from here? Exactly, that's, that's very big.
0: Yeah, but if there's an interest rate a shock or an interest rate adjustment, again, given the inverse nature of these, if the, if the interest rates spike higher, then that wouldn't that mean that the, the bond prices would spike lower? So I don't have much upside on the price, but I, I think, at least in theory, I have a lot of downside risk on the price. And so that's, our, that's part of their discussion, and they want to respond to that but they also wanna bring into their response, as you pointed out, this discussion of duration. What do we mean by duration? So most people think in the sort of the common language that we use for discussion of a bond is, or at least one aspect of it, is its, its maturity. How long until, how many years or months or weeks or what have you, until a bond matures? Yeah, an
2: important thing to note is just like the common theme is if you're an investor and you're going to be locking up your money for a longer period of time you would want to get paid more due to that like longevity of it that long time frame where you could be using it in another investment i think is kind of the overall theme it gets here
0: mhm so duration is 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 closely related to the concept of of maturity length so if let's say something matures in 10 years it's closely related to this and then you might say the duration then is close to those 10 years but duration is affected and and adjust we adjust the duration as, as to reflect the sum of the gain that we receive from owning that thing for 10 years in the form of bond income payments so the bigger and the the bigger those are and the faster they come into our hands the more they effectively shorten the duration of something. And so that's in, to, to try to do an apples to apples comparison in bond world, bond, bond gurus or bond st- students of bonds will try to, to make a, what would be apples and oranges if two different bonds have, have you know, not only two different maturity dates, but they also have different interest rates, to try to bring them into one compatible comparable framework they and make it apples to apples they use the concept of duration so a short duration bond in their argument or at least restate that in environments of low yields in environments of low yields which is sl- slightly different than than the duration issue but in environments of low yields the price and yield sensitivity it is higher In other words, if something's paying as currently as a ten-year Treasury one and a quarter percent, if it moves a quarter of a percent, the impact on price is greater than if something's paying ten percent and it moves a quarter of a percent. The impact on the price of that bond isn't as great by that quarter percent move in yields. So they're they're saying we understand you investors in bonds today, knowing that you hold bonds that have. Already extremely low, historically low yields are concerned that if there is an interest rate move, the impact on price will be magnified. We understand that, but but they they have some ways again to kind of help people back away from the cliff on that. And then again, before we talk about the solutions, the third one, Adrian, the third concern that you mentioned that the diversification is gone. Do you want to elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a big one because um, just historically speaking, like we said, bonds tend to be have an inverse relationship or let's just say a low correlation with equities, where if let's just say the equity and I think Roshan was able gave us a good example of this and I think a couple podcasts ago where the market had a a down day, a pretty bad day, and the best performance portfolio was the bond element of the portfolio. But again, there's such a low interest rate environment now where these bonds aren't really yielding much. So again, the biggest thing, the biggest aspect of this diversification or the go-to would just be the equity and bond portion of it as well. So that's also something really investors are considering right now.
0: Yeah, if historically these things have moved, if bonds and stocks have been, let's say uncorrelated or in some cases almost inversely correlated, the, the concern here is, is, but wait a second. If, right now, bonds are priced as high as they are because yields are low, and, and this partly the psychology of the stock market is also affected by these really low interest rates, if the Federal Reserve and, and through the government stimulus programs and, and so forth, you had a shift in interest rates, upward that would move the value of or the prices of bonds downward would the market also the stock market also not react adversely to that change and would not stocks also fall simultaneously with the bond prices falling so in other words if they while normally we expect that they'll have an inverse or at least an un a lack of a correlation wouldn't they in this case actually have a lockstep correlation where the value of the bonds and the value of the stocks dropped at the same time and that's the that's the concern that people are expressing precisely because part of what's made the the party at the punch bowl of equities so so fun for everyone has been this ultra low interest rate environment and all of this stimulus they're
2: mentioning that you maybe consider looking at maybe taking on more risk in that bond aspect of your portfolio, maybe looking at taking on a little bit more credit risk to get a little bit more yield. And I thought it was really interesting. This was kind of new. It says hedge funds, specifically hedge fund credit strategies are another area that investors should be like looking at and for this area of their bond. And that was kind of new to me. And I thought that was a really interesting area of the article that I wasn't too familiar with.
0: Well, yeah, so those are some of the solutions. But even before they get to saying, so here's what you could do, they just also wanted us to just sort of calm down a little bit. And they said, even though interest rates are this low, bear in mind that there is this attribute of, of bond um, prices that effectively yields a total a, a higher total return than the nominal interest rate on these On these bonds and that has to do with as you hold a bond and you get closer and closer and closer to its maturity date at least in their their example of this of people who are flipping from a 10-year to a 9-year to an 8-year to a um, 7-year maturity date on a bond of this identical interest rate what happens is is that it effectively results in a return in their view at the current at least at the time that they published their article in february they believed that a 10-year treasury would probably have a return itself of about 2.3 percent not the not the lower return that you're seeing there so number one is is you know don't be so frightened by it the number the second thing they said is yes bond prices will move up and will move down and yes At these low interest rates, the price response to changing small changes in interest rates will be magnified, but they'll be magnified in both directions. And if you believe that what we're really in now is a sustained environment of low interest rates, because the central banks won't really allow those those yields to rise, while we will have it's likely that we will have you know movements wave small waves up and down and with that price responses up and down they'll they'll move unfavorably at times and favorably at other times finally also is just one more don't worry um commentary they said and if you you know you want to talk about the diversification is gone mm, maybe on high yield bonds high yield bonds tend to have a correlation with with stocks somewhere in the 0.7 to 0.8 area, for those of you who remember your, your, your uh, correlation unit back in your math class. But bonds as a whole, the aggregate bonds as a whole, leaving out the high yield, actually have, over a long period of time, roughly zero correlation with stocks. And so that, th- their view is, is that that historical tendency for there to be that zero correlation, that's not, that hasn't disappeared and and that will remain in place. So with the, those are some of the hey don't worry so much sorts of responses they do have some prescriptions. And Adrian you've you've kind of gotten us into a couple of those. Prescription number 1 is more high yield and prescription number 2 is thinking about hedged credit. Let's talk about the high yield first. Why high yield?
2: Well again that's kind of like kind of like the risk and return trade-off where if you want to get your bond portion of your portfolio to be giving you more um, return or more income, whatever it may be, you might look on taking on a little bit more credit risk, just kind of toning up the risk a little bit on that bond portion of your portfolio to get that return, I think is really important. And the other one, that hedge fund, the hedge fund credit strategies, I wasn't too familiar with. And that that was a pretty new one. But I think it would be pretty interesting for our listeners to go over it.
0: Well, I'll talk about that in just a second, but let's let's do the let's kind of do a little bit deeper dive on on the high yield bonds. So when we say high yield, what 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 we're saying right now is, or at least at the time of publication of this article back in February, high yield was yielding instead of the you know the paltry returns on Treasuries, you were seeing a four point three percent return on high yield broadly speaking. Now, as you've mentioned, Adrian, there is credit risk, and so credit risk means that there in, in this case, means at least there's some risk of some default. And in this case, it's not default in the technical sense of, hey, we didn't make a payment on a timely basis, but then we caught up. No, it's in fact that some some companies are in tough shape to begin with, and uh, they just can't, not only they can they not continue to make payments on a timely basis, maybe you never get your capital back. but But the impact historically of those defaults Has been to subtract a little bit from that return and I think the number I recall was 1.3% so if you had a 4.3% average return on high yield but you had to allow for maybe 1.3 of that to be given back in the form of some portion of the portfolio um, defaulting you'd still have a three and that three um, is certainly better than a one or a one and a half so Some allocation, not a wholesale allocation, not a sweeping movement of your entire bond component over to the high yield area, but at least some allocation over that should help a little bit. What's more, they they emphasize that if you look back over the long history of high yield bonds, the credit quality of those bonds right now is as strong as it's been over the last 20 years.
2: And I also saw something about the recovery too, where they, they tend to have these uh, good bounce backs. is also another area where historically they've done well.
0: Oh yeah, most of the time, now the, the credit crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, that was a little different story. It took a little longer for high yield to come back, but on most sorts of uh, those moments where there's a little jolt to the high yield area, within a year or so, it's back to, it's back to where it had been. And, you know, the, the difficulty of that is gone. So Your point, right. The recoveries on those tend to be, you know, tend to be pretty rapid. So the, but the other part of this, as you mentioned, is the hedged credit. And when we say hedged, um, what we mean by that is instead of being long, on all of your positions, and I don't mean long duration, but I mean buying something now, hopefully at a cheaper price, hoping that it'll grow in value over time. That and then you'll eventually sell it at a higher price. Instead, you can also incorporate short strategies. That means that you borrow something now, sell it at what you think is a, a you know, a higher that price than it'll be at in the future, and then in the future, your intent is. You're crossing your fingers on this one, that it'll be lower in price, and you'll be able to buy it back then. So, in other words, if you're concerned about if you're concerned about that that asymmetric risk that we were talking about just a moment ago, more downside risk than upside. Well, then the the solution to that might be to instead of being long, be short. And now you've flipped it. Now the same the same outlook that led you to believe that you had more downside than upside now leads you to believe that you have more upside than downside because you're short. Adrian, you want to talk about that at all? Otherwise, I can talk about some, some applications of that. Oh,
2: I'd love to hear about the applications. I think you gave a pretty good summary of it. And it's just, it's just really interesting, all the different components of it. And like you say, this article, again, kind of highlights that there is light at the end of the tunnel for this bond portfolio where Ray Dalio kind of it's a little bit more of a grim picture. It kind of makes me wish we had both of these people on this podcast that kind of really butt heads like you and Roshan.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, that would be great to have a little bit of argument here, a little heat. But um, the, the way in which these you, you typically would access these hedged credit strategies in the past, and I would say still to, to, to a large extent today, is to use a hedge fund. And not necessarily just any hedge fund, but you know, if you can have a basis on which to make some evaluations of different hedge funds and which ones have shown a, a proficiency or a, a talent level for being able to to accomplish this, then you know you can hire them to handle a portion of your portfolio. Most of our listeners, though, are probably not thinking, "Well, I have a, a large enough portion of my portfolio to allocate to a, a hedge." Hedge fund to do, you know, hedge credit strategies. So there have been other ways in which that people have devised solutions to some of this, m- more through what I would call hedge fund replication. Unfortunately, for for th- at this point in time, most of those hedge fund replication strategies a haven't performed quite as well as the average hedge fund has. Um, they seem to lag on, on their pre expense returns by about one percent per year and then if you add in expenses they lag by another percent so there's about a two percent per year lag there and they're more tailored toward the equity uh, side of the hedge fund world as opposed to the uh, to the um credit side or the bond side but what one could do and i'm not saying one should this is not a recommendation it's just an observation about what one could do is to actually take some bond um, ETFs, as an example, and short those in a portfolio. And uh, if that, you know, if if your outlook is, is that those bond ETFs, especially longer duration ones, are likely to decline meaningfully in price over some period of time, then if you're short those, though there would be some borrowing cost to you to do so, you might actually be rewarded uh for doing that. So again, that's not a recommendation. It's just an observation that there are ways of implementing this particular recommendation in in ways that don't necessarily involve hiring um a hedge fund manager to manage the credit for that you. That
2: shows how creative you have to be and that there's just so many different like routes and avenues you can you can take to really just get that income or that diversification or that liquidity that you you need you just got to do your research or have a conversation with somebody just to find it because you know there's a lot out there for you to kind of utilize and i think that's kind of a, a big theme that i think both of these um, writers were kind of stating the articles were like look yes there's this traditional 60 40 but you just kind of got to break it down and look at all the little areas or different components of it different asset classes and mixes to really get that protection or that return you really you you really want so i think that's uh all great points there
0: and there's one last piece which is much more i would say sort of basic and elementary but it is and it's something you touched on uh here as well adrian but it is even within the category of bonds diversify so by that it's not just into high yield and it's not or or into and or into hedged credit strategies but a simple way of implementing this would be to have some and and I'll just report what we tend to do at least in in my case is that let's say a client has a 60 40 portfolio and that 40% is um in in bonds you know we're talking about here now um one way is to have what at least what we're doing right now is we don't really have anything in long duration bonds. And the reason is, is that you, or previously we were talking about the sensitivity of price bond prices to yield changes when the, the starting interest rate is low, but uh, said in a different way. Another consideration is that long duration bonds have more price sensitivity than short duration bonds due to the same interest rate change. So we're probably we're probably i'd say half of the of a bond allocation is on the intermediate duration another maybe third is on short duration and then the balance is spread equally between high yield and international bonds and and maybe we should be going a little bit further in the direction of high yield and an in international
2: yeah i thought did you think it was interesting when they talked about that uh, that fifty year bond? I thought that was uh, a really interesting part of the article. What's kind of your take on that?
0: Well, so I'm not. I, I recall them. Uh, Dalio's discussion of long, um, the, the long return. The, you know, in some cases, centuries to get your money back. But would, did you? It was are you talking about in the Northern Trust article that it had a fifty year bond? Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah.
0: Oh, I must have read right past that. Tell, say more.
2: Yeah, but that's, that's definitely something. It, it might actually have been Ray Dalio's article, but let me okay. just, uh, I could probably go back. But yeah, we're going to definitely share these articles in the show notes because, again, they they have a lot of great information and they're, they really were a good summation on how you should look at that portion of your portfolio that's al- allocated to bonds and fixed incomes, whatever it may be, and how important diversification is. So I think those are some great points. Eric, were there any other final points that you would wanna bring up before we
0: yeah, wrap up? Yeah, I guess I'll say one yeah, I'll say one more thing, and that is is that while I am certainly a believer in the use of passive investment strategies for many categories of the equity markets, particularly the more heavily researched an area is, and by that I mean the large companies in the United States, generally the lower the 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 advantage that you obtain through turning to a talented manager in that area, the cost of hiring that talent isn't always recovered by the, uh, the additional, the incremental return that they can offer. But I would say that on the bond side, the idea of you know the market, the sensibility of of a market capitalization index based approach for stocks doesn't seem to me to make as much sense. On the bond side, because really, then what you're doing is, is, if you say, "Hey, we're going to just allocate on an index basis um, a pro- the share of our portfolio that's in fixed income or bonds to those countries and those companies that are the biggest issuers of debt," in a certain way, what you're doing is you're you're rewarding the people who are the or the companies and the countries that are the least financially disciplined. <laughs> And so the more debt that they issue, the more of their stuff you have in your portfolio. So I think in this sense, it, it, there is actually, uh, I think, a greater advantage to consider, instead of using index-based strategies, um, irrespective of the asset class, in the case of bonds, I think it, there's an advantage to be had, in, it's certainly in some categories, by using active management instead of a passive approach. And with that active management, at times you can get managers who will instead of say, hey, all we do is intermediate bonds, or all we do is high yield bonds, or all we do is treasuries, which you'll have them instead say, is we're strategic, we run a strategic bond here or a total return bond fund. And they can, within that, use um, short strategies and hedging strategies, and they can rotate from one sector to the next where they see there's opportunity. So, in in your conversation with your advisor you might want to have a look at the incorporation at least of some of these more active sort of strategic approaches to to managing bonds than simply going with the you know the the index-based uh approach instead
2: yeah awesome eric i mean i think that again this was such a great overview of this section of your portfolio And again, listeners, if you have any other questions about this uh, topic that we discussed today, we'd love to answer it. Um, Again, Erica, I really appreciate the info you really gave on these articles. It was some really good content today. And we're going to be back next week. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show.
1: Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at RetirementLifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arete Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arete Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor, and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, Member, FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.